All right, thank you guys so much for coming today to the critical care curriculum. Um, so this is actually our last critical care grand rounds for the academic year and our last of the entire critical care curriculum series for the year. Um, so I really wanna thank you guys for your attendance and being present at the curriculum, especially as we transition to Zoom and we all became increasingly familiar with this modality of, of education. Um, and so we will start back up later in the summer and you'll hear from me with what the curriculum for next year looks like. I'm very, very excited to be able to end our curriculum with a friend of mine, Dr. Brad Butcher. Um, so Dr. Butcher is currently at the University of Pittsburgh, but he did the majority of his uh, training actually at University of San Francisco. He did his hospitalist fellowship training there, his nephrology fellowship and his critical care fellowship training at uh, University of San Francisco, UCSF. And, um, and then uh, came back to University of Pittsburgh where he is now. Um, he actually runs their post ICU clinic at the University of Pittsburgh. And Brad and I crossed paths only very briefly while I was there. And he was kind enough really to offer me a lot of advice and mentorship as I was leaving the, the state of uh, Pennsylvania. Um, and he has been really a formative part of uh, my ability to build and construct a post-ICU clinic here at the University of Maryland. So for those of you who don't know, we do have a growing, developing post-ICU clinic here, and much of that growth and development is really thanks to Brad uh, and, and Brad's team, really. So I'm excited to have Brad here with us today. I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Um, if you guys can just ask your questions through the chat box along the way, I will um, kind of save them for the end, and we can ask Brad and discuss anything we want with Brad at the end. So without further ado, uh, uh, welcome to University of Maryland, Dr. Butcher. Uh, thank you very much, Andy, for that very kind introduction and good afternoon, everyone. It's really a pleasure to be here and thank you for attending. I'm excited to spend the next hour with you talking about something that's become quite important to me over the past several years and that's survivorship after critical illness. While it may seem obvious that patients who survive a significant critical illness are fundamentally different than they were prior to falling ill, it's only within the past decade that the constellation of changes that often accompany critical illness has been more rigorously codified and studied. My goals today are to provide you with a broad understanding of survivorship following critical illness, to introduce you to the post-intensive care syndrome, and to discuss efforts to lessen its impact on patients and their loved ones, with a brief plug of our program at UPMC Mercy at the end. There's a lot of information to cover, so let's dive in. Since its beginning with the polio epidemic in Copenhagen in the 1950s, the field of critical care medicine has been primarily focused on rescuing patients from life-threatening illness and injury. Strategies for resuscitation, monitors to detect physiological changes, and machines to support failing organs were all developed with the hopes of improving patient survival, with comparatively little interest paid to long-term patient outcomes. And thanks to these advances in the provision of critical care, this agenda has been quite successful as evidenced by declining mortality rates for ARDS and severe sepsis over time. Each year, more than 5.7 million adults in the United States require intensive care. Roughly 85% of them will survive, and an interesting number are living for many years following their index critical illness. This growing population of critical illness survivors remains vulnerable to a host of complications that we'll explore shortly. This prolonged vulnerability challenges the idea that critical illness ends at the doors of the ICU. For many, the need for critical care is not a transient phenomenon, but instead the beginning of a significant burden of illness that far exceeds the time spent in the ICU, and in many respects mimics the course of a chronic disease with its attendant increases in long-term morbidity and mortality. Indeed, a report generated from the 2002 Brussels Roundtable suggested that an episode of critical illness ends 
only when a patient's risk of late complications has returned to that of a similar person who had not fallen ill. The recognition of this premise caused an important shift in the field's research agenda. Although short-term outcomes like hospital mortality remain very important, they are nevertheless inadequate surrogates for many patient-centered outcomes. The Brussels Roundtable ended by calling for changes in the approach to observational, interventional, and methodological research with respect to long-term outcomes, and those recommendations have informed much of the literature that we'll discuss today. The number of citations involving critical care studies in journal has risen dramatically from 1970 to 2013, but the number of studies including long-term outcomes has remained quite small. Of over 26,000 critical care articles identified during this time period, less than 2% of them reported post-discharge outcomes. Since the Brussels Roundtable report, however, that number has grown exponentially as the field shifts its focus from primarily mortality prevention to recovery enhancement. To better understand the challenges that patients face during recovery from critical illness, it's important to really appreciate what happens to them during hospitalization. The complex interplay between pre-hospitalization factors like age and comorbidities, the impacts of acute illness such as tissue hypoperfusion and organ dysfunction, and the hazards of hospitalization, including prolonged bed rest, sedating medications, impaired nutrition, and poor sleep, create a milieu that engenders deconditioning, delirium, and malnutrition. This can lead to organ failures, weakness, and cognitive impairment, which can in turn have a dramatic impact on the patient's recovery trajectory further leading to recurrent health problems and inability to return to social roles and increased risk of death. Let's now consider the conceptual model of disability developed by Naji in the 1960s and modified by Febrega and Jetta in the 1990s. In this model, diseases or injuries, referred to here as pathology, result in dysfunction of body systems, known as impairments. These impairments lead to the inability to perform basic physical and cognitive tasks, functional limitations, which then alter one's ability to meet the demands of their physical or social environment, disability. To illustrate the process, consider Mrs. D, a 57-year-old woman who, prior to her illness, lived independently and worked as an executive secretary. She developed respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation secondary to pneumonia, complicated by delirium, the pathologies. Following extubation, the physical therapist notes that she has significant muscle atrophy and weakness and impairment. With her delirium resolved, her daughter is concerned that her mother is having trouble thinking and remembering things, another impairment. After being transferred out of the ICU, she continues to require assistance to ambulate, a functional limitation. She complains that she cannot recall details of recent conversations with her family, another functional limitation. As discharge planning progresses, she continues to require assistance to bathe and dress, disabilities and activities of daily living. Her daughter is concerned that she'll be unable to manage her medications and finances, disabilities and instrumental activities of daily living. As a result of these newly acquired disabilities, Mrs. D is discharged to a skilled nursing facility where she resides one year later, unable to return to work. Despite the growing appreciation of the significant challenges that survivors of critical illness face, this is not often discussed between intensivists and their patients or their surrogate decision makers. In a survey of intensive care providers in 73 hospitals in Michigan, only 34% of respondents reported having discussions with almost every or many but not all of their patients about post-ICU challenges and expected life changes. A full 27% reported almost never communicating these issues to patients. This was echoed by a study of patients requiring long-term mechanical ventilation 
in which only 26% of surrogate decision makers reported that physicians discussed expectations for patients' likelihood of survival, general health, quality of life, and caregiving needs around the time of tracheostomy placement. Indeed, surrogate decision makers and physicians often have misaligned expectations for patients' likelihood of survival, functional status, and quality of life. Consider this study of 126 patients requiring tracheostomy for prolonged mechanical ventilation. Surrogates and physicians were interviewed at the time of tracheostomy about their expectations for one-year patient survival, functional status, and quality of life, and these expectations were then compared with observed one-year outcomes. Incredibly, at one year of follow-up, only 11% of patients were alive and functionally independent. Surrogates clearly had higher expectations than physicians for patient survival, functional status, and quality of life. Agreement in expectations between physicians and surrogates was universally low, as was their accuracy in predicting outcomes, with surrogates being overly optimistic and physicians slightly pessimistic. Such misaligned expectations may be driven, at least in part, by poor communication. Work by Leslie Schoenemann and Doug White suggests that most clinician family conferences about prognosis for critically ill patients often lack communication about and deliberation on patients' values and preferences, including such fundamental topics as maintaining independence, being able to perform activities of daily living, remaining free from cognitive impairment, and engaging in social relationships. But since intensivists rarely see patients in the outpatient setting, are they adequately equipped to accurately predict patient recovery trajectories and long-term outcomes? With that in mind, what are the complications of surviving critical illness? What might we say to patients and families about what their lives might look like once they leave the hospital? The success of critical care has traditionally been judged by the proportion of patients alive at either hospital discharge or day 28. Until recently, population-level estimates of the excess mortality risk attributed to surviving intensive care were poorly defined. But it's now clear that survivors carry a significantly increased risk of mortality for years following their critical illness, suggesting that surviving a critical illness is the first step on a journey of chronic disease. In a matched retrospective cohort study using a sample of Medicare beneficiaries from 2002 to 2006, Hannah Wunchen colleagues investigated the three-year mortality outcomes of older ICU survivors. The cohort was divided into three groups, those who survived hospitalization with critical care, those who survived hospitalization without critical care, and general population controls. In the first six months following discharge, mortality for ICU survivors was 14%, compared with 11% for hospital controls and 2.7% for general population controls. After three years, the mortality of ICU survivors was 40%, compared with 35% for hospital controls and 15% for general population controls. Of note, the need for mechanical ventilation during intensive care dramatically increased both six-month and three-year mortality, as demonstrated in this figure. One explanation for this increased mortality is that critical illness may accelerate underlying comorbid conditions or result in the development of new ones. In a Dutch analysis of over 56,000 patients requiring critical care and 75,000 control patients, Van Busikom and colleagues discovered that patients with no pre-existing conditions who required critical care were nearly five-fold more likely to develop new chronic conditions than control patients who did not require critical care. Hyperlipidemia, heart disease, COPD, depression, diabetes, asthma, and epilepsy were the most prevalent newly developed chronic conditions in ICU survivors in the year following discharge. Another marker of the fragility of this patient population is the frequent need for hospital readmission and increased healthcare resource utilization. 
Hua and colleagues analyzed data of a cohort of nearly 500,000 patients with a hospitalization requiring critical care between 2008 and 2010. They found that 16% of patients discharged after an ICU stay were readmitted within 30 days, and 35% were readmitted within six months, over one quarter of whom required intensive care once again. Readmission was more likely in patients with older age, more comorbidities, a longer index hospitalization, need for tracheostomy or dialysis, a diagnosis of severe sepsis, and discharge to a skilled nursing facility. Overall, only 17% of patients had the same admission diagnoses for both hospitalizations, and the five most common reasons for early readmission were congestive heart failure, sepsis, complication from a procedure, dysrhythmia, and pneumonia. Hirschberg and colleagues examined inpatient admissions, emergency department visits, and outpatient visits in the year prior and following ICU admission in a cohort of over 4,000 ICU survivors in the Intermountain healthcare system. Readmission rates at 30 days, 90 days, and one year were 15%, 26%, and 43% respectively, and 24% of all readmissions were classified as preventable. Compared with the pre-ICU period, hospital admissions increased by 60% in the post-ICU period, whereas emergency department and outpatient visits increased by 8% and 33% respectively. Shockingly, only 8% of all ICU survivors received support from PT, OT, cognitive, or mental health clinicians in the year post-ICU. Among the 617 patients who were in the ICU for more than five days and required mechanical ventilation, only 5% had a PT, OT, cognitive, or mental health visit within 90 days of ICU discharge. In 2010, a conference was convened by the Society of Critical Care Medicine to inform stakeholders from the rehabilitation, outpatient, and community care settings of the long-term consequences of critical illness and to initiate improvements across the continuum of care for survivors and their families. Attendees agreed that given the high frequency of multiple impairments after critical illness, awareness would be improved by using a single term to identify the presence of one or more of these impairments. The term chosen was the post-intensive care syndrome, or PICS, which is defined as new or worsening impairments in physical, cognitive, or mental health status arising after a critical illness and persisting beyond acute care hospitalization. PICS can also impact family members and loved ones who may develop the psychiatric and social sequelae of PICS in the face of changing family dynamics and socioeconomic pressures. We'll now turn our attention to some of the seminal work that ultimately led to this consensus conference definition of PICS, as well as to work that's been inspired by it. Historically, the foundation of long-term outcomes research in critical care originated from longitudinal evaluations of patients with ARDS, which evolved from an initial focus on pulmonary function to quality of life assessment and ultimately to a comprehensive exploration of functional and neuropsychological outcomes. Initial studies focused on pulmonary function testing as a surrogate for recovery and revealed variable obstructive and restrictive deficits that generally improved within six months. Shortly thereafter, studies focused on quality of life assessments using questionnaires such as the SF36 and the EQ5D. Although limited by design flaws, small sample sizes, and the inability to assess baseline quality of life, these studies collectively demonstrated that the quality of life of ARDS survivors was, perhaps not surprisingly, significantly worse when compared with the general population. Studies of broader critically ill populations similarly demonstrated that ICU survivors have a lower quality of life than age and sex match controls. 
a seminal and perhaps the seminal longitudinal study by Margaret Herridge and colleagues published in the New England Journal in 2003 evaluated 109 ARDS patients at three, six, and 12 months following discharge with pulmonary function testing, a six-minute walk test, and a quality of life evaluation using the SF36. Her cohort of patients was young with a median age of 45, healthy with only 17% having more than one coexisting condition and employed with 83% working full time. They were also severely ill with a median Apache 2 score of 23, a median of 21 days of mechanical ventilation and 35 days in the ICU and half of them required tracheostomy. She found that survivors of ARDS had persistent and debilitating physical limitations one year later, including impaired endurance, limited ability to return to work and a poorer quality of life. Patients achieved a distance of only 66% of predicted values on the six minute walk test and only 49% of them had returned to some form of work and quality of life measures were largely below those of age and sex match controls. She continued to follow this cohort of patients for an additional four years. At five years, the median distance walked in the six minute walk test remained only 76% of the predicted value and scores on the physical component of the quality of life assessment remained approximately one standard deviation below those of age and sex matched controls. Fan and colleagues studied 222 ARDS survivors with standardized evaluations of extremity, grip and respiratory muscle strength, a six minute walk test and the SF36 quality of life assessment. The presence of weakness at hospital discharge present in 36% of their cohort was associated with substantial impairments in hand grip strength, respiratory muscle strength, the six minute walk test and quality of life, all of which persisted at 24 months. Perhaps most importantly, these investigators discovered that the duration of bed rest during critical illness was the single most important factor associated with persistent muscle weakness throughout 24 months of follow up. After adjusting for all other risk factors, muscle strength was three to 11% lower for every additional day of bed rest, highlighting the importance of identifying ICU acquired weakness and initiating early mobilization in the ICU. The most robustly studied test of physical function in critical illness survivors is indeed the six minute walk test, a widely used measure of functional exercise capacity and well validated in this patient population. This meta-analysis of 1,700 critical illness survivors confirms that the mean six-minute walk test distances achieved at three months, 12 months, and even 60 months post-discharge were all below population norms, emphasizing persistent deficits in endurance and exercise capacity in critical illness survivors. Other meta-analyses have shown similar findings with respect to decreased strength of limb muscles, respiratory muscles, and hand grip. The first study to examine neuropsychological outcomes in ARDS survivors was performed by Ramona Hopkins and colleagues and published in 1999. They demonstrated cognitive impairment in 100% of their cohort at the time of hospital discharge. And at one year of follow-up, 78% of patients had persistent impairment in at least one cognitive domain, including memory, attention, concentration, and mental processing speed. 30% exhibited global cognitive decline. After two years of follow-up, 47% had persistent neurocognitive impairment. In this study, cognitive outcomes were significantly correlated with the presence and duration of hypoxemia. Perhaps the most impactful study thus far of cognitive outcomes in survivors of critical illness was the BRAIN ICU study. In this multicenter prospective cohort study, Pandhera Pandey and colleagues enrolled patients with respiratory failure or shock, routinely evaluated them for delirium, and assessed global cognition with a battery of neuropsychological tests at three and 12 months after discharge. Of the 821 patients enrolled, 6% had mild cognitive impairments at baseline and delirium developed in 74%. 
Three months after discharge, 40% of the patients had global cognition scores one and a half standard deviations below the population mean, similar to patients with moderate traumatic brain injury. And 26% had scores more than two standard deviations below the population mean, similar to scores for patients with mild Alzheimer's disease. Deficits occurred in both older and younger patients and persisted. At 12 months, 34% had scores similar to persons with moderate traumatic brain injury, and 24% had scores similar to persons with mild Alzheimer's disease. In this study, a longer duration of delirium was independently associated with worse global cognition and executive function at both three and 12 months. Although I won't describe this study in detail, a picture is often worth a thousand words. This is a representative image from a study performed by Jim Jackson and colleagues, who followed a cohort of 34 patients with no premorbid cognitive dysfunction who developed respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation. Deficits in the domains of visuospatial and executive function were particularly severe, as demonstrated by this image. It's not difficult to imagine how deficits of this type, such as the inability to accurately replicate a picture, could translate into difficulties with driving and a generalized inability to process complex problems. Physical and cognitive impairments often lead to participation restrictions, including inabilities to perform activities of daily living and instrumental activities of daily living, which can compromise the ability to live independently. Activities of daily living, or ADLs, involves one's ability to complete daily tasks, such as bathing, dressing, and feeding oneself, whereas instrumental activities of daily living, or IADLs, involve more complex tasks, such as financial and medication management, driving, shopping, and meal preparation. ADLs require physical strength and coordination, while IADLs require both physical strength and significant cognitive processing. Awashina and colleagues sought to determine changes in physical functioning as measured by a composite score of ADLs and IADLs among patients who survived severe sepsis by analyzing a nationally representative cohort study of Americans older than 50 called the Health and Retirement Study. Participants were divided into three groups based on their pre-sepsis function, those with no limitations, those with mild to moderate limitations, and those with severe limitations, defined as requiring assistance with four or more ADLs or IADLs. He found that survivors of severe sepsis were at greater risk for developing functional limitations, particularly patients with better baseline physical functioning. Severe sepsis was associated with the development of 1.57 new limitations among patients with no prior limitations, 1.5 new limitations among patients who had mild to moderate limitations, and no significant new limitations in patients with severe pre-existing disability. This was the first demonstration that a hospitalization for severe sepsis is independently associated with enduring functional limitations with lasting implications for patients' independence. Awashina also investigated cognitive outcomes in this population and found that incident sepsis was associated with a tripling in the odds of moderate to severe cognitive impairment. To put this in context, using published dementia and sepsis incidence rates, he argues that nearly 20,000 cases per year of moderate to severe cognitive impairment may be attributable to sepsis. In a systematic review and meta-analysis of 16 studies of IADL assessments and survivors of critical illness enrolling a total of over 4,700 patients, Hopkins and colleagues found that 69% of ICU survivors experienced new or worsening IADL dependencies after critical illness. In 75% of the longitudinal studies, IADL dependencies did improve over time, but failed to return to pre-ICU levels. A handful of factors seemed to predict IADL disability, including older age and factors associated with illness severity, such as the presence of delirium and the length of mechanical ventilation. 
Among the mental health sequelae of critical illness, depressive symptoms are common and can prevent survivors from returning to work, participating in social roles, and coping with physical and mental limitations during recovery. In a systematic review and meta-analysis of 38 studies that evaluated symptoms of depression in over 4,000 adult survivors of critical illness, the prevalence of clinically important depressive symptoms was approximately 30% at two to three months, six months, and 12 to 14 months following hospitalization. Four studies with longitudinal assessments of depressive symptoms in a fixed cohort of patients showed no change in the prevalence of depressive symptoms during the first 12 months after discharge. Contrast this prevalence of 30% in critical illness survivors to 8 to 11% in general American and European populations. Consistent with studies of depression, a systematic review and meta-analysis of 27 studies totaling nearly 2,900 patients demonstrated that in a pattern remarkably similar to that of depression, anxiety disorders are prevalent in 32% of survivors of critical illness at two to three months following discharge, 40% at six months, and 34% at 12 to 14 months. Moreover, in a systematic review and meta-analysis of 36 cohorts of nearly 4,300 patients surviving general critical illness, Parker and colleagues found that the point prevalence of clinically important PTSD symptoms was 25% at one to six months and 17% at seven to 12 months following discharge, a prevalence roughly equivalent to survivors of wartime combat and the World Trade Center attacks. It's also important to realize that many patients not meeting formal DSM diagnostic criteria for PTSD do have isolated PTSD symptoms, such as hypervigilance or avoidance, which can nevertheless be debilitating and which could prevent people from returning to healthcare settings even when needed. In studies that reported risk factors for depression, anxiety, and PTSD following critical illness, age, gender, severity of illness scores, ICU and hospital lengths of stay, and a variety of sedation strategies were not associated with the development of psychiatric disabilities. Pre-existing psychiatric comorbidities, psychological distress during the ICU stay, stressful nightmares, and delusional memories all had a significant association with depression, anxiety, and PTSD. Nearly all studies suggested that the development of one psychiatric disorder was strongly associated with the development of the other two, and it was particularly common for patients to develop all three. The constellation of physical, cognitive, and psychiatric disabilities that often accompany critical illness can make returning to familial roles, social roles, driving, and employment challenging. As we saw in the Heritage study, only 49% of ARDS survivors were able to return to employment one year following their critical illness, and only 77% five years following their critical illness. In a prospective cohort nested in the brain ICU study, 58% of patients surviving critical illness were unemployed three months following discharge, and 47% remained unemployed at one year. Similarly, studies included in a meta-analysis by Otaki and colleagues reported that only 42 to 56% had returned to work one year following their critical illness. One key consequence of unemployment in both patients recovering from critical illness and the family members who leave jobs to care for them is financial stress. In a study of 175 critical illness survivors and 85 family members, serious financial distress was common at six weeks and six months with both parties. Factors independently associated with patient financial stress included female gender, financial stress prior to illness, and the presence of children less than 10 years old at home. Perhaps not surprisingly, financial stress had a direct effect on symptoms of anxiety and depression. It's not surprising that financial distress is a significant concern among caregivers, given that in the United States, more than half of patients who survive prolonged mechanical ventilation continue to require the assistance of a caregiver one year after discharge. 
This enduring need can have a negative impact on family members, including diminished quality of life, a sense of burden, negative uh, mental health disorders, impairments in their own physical health, and job and financial insecurity. This is now recognized as post-intensive care syndrome family, or PICS-F, emphasizing that critical illness has an impact that reaches beyond the person who fell ill. Ultimately, poor caregiver outcomes may compromise patients' rehabilitation potential and the sustainability of home care. To better understand caregiver distress, Cameron and colleagues utilized a multi-center prospective cohort of patients who had received mechanical ventilation for at least seven days and their caregivers to characterize caregiver mental health outcomes. Data on symptoms of depression, psychological well-being, and quality of life were collected via validated questionnaires at three, six, and 12 months following discharge. The mean age of the caregivers was 53 years, 70% were women, and 61% were caring for a spouse. They were caring for patients with a mean age of 55 who had spent a mean of 25 days in the intensive care unit. 49% of caregivers reported high levels of depressive symptoms at three months, and 43% continued to remain depressed at one year. Similar patterns were observed for scores of psychological well-being and mental health quality of life. In caregivers, younger age, less social support, and less sense of control over their lives were associated with worsened depression. In context, these findings suggest that a substantial number of caregivers are at risk for clinical depression, considerably more so than the population in general, and even more than in a study of caregivers of patients with Alzheimer's disease. It's also important to remember, as several studies have shown, that symptoms of anxiety and PTSD in family members are common, often begin while the patient is in intensive care and can persist for months to years afterwards. PICS is a heterogeneous syndrome, and no two patients' journeys are exactly the same. It's important to understand that presentations of PICS aren't generally restricted to isolated disability in only one of the three domains, but often involve disabilities in two, if not all three. This idea is supported by work of Mara and colleagues who performed a study nested in the brain ICU cohort in which survivors of critical illness were assessed at three and 12 months for combinations of cognitive impairment, depression, and functional limitations described as disability in the figure. They found that one or more PICS problems were present in 64% and 56% of the cohort at three and 12 months respectively. And problems in two or more domains were present in 25% and 21% of the cohort at three and 12 months respectively. Based on my experience, these numbers seem surprisingly low. Had a more comprehensive evaluation been performed, including a six minute walk test, screening for instrumental activities of daily living and assessments of anxiety and PTSD, the percentage of patients with PICS in multiple domains would have likely been higher. It's worth noting that there are several challenges associated with interpreting the quantitative PICS literature. First, given that there's no gold standard for any of the domains involved in a PICS assessment, there is a lack of consistency among the tests performed by researchers. In a scoping review of 425 papers assessing at least one measure of long-term outcomes in ICU survivors, a whopping 250 different measurement tools were used. For example, there are at least seven commonly used tests to screen for depression in this patient population, making comparisons across studies challenging. Furthermore, even when a single test is used, there is disagreement about what makes a test positive. For example, the Lawton Index is a commonly used tool to determine dependency in IADLs, but researchers disagree on what score actually indicates disability. Third, given that critical illness is often unexpected, the majority of studies evaluating survivors had little pre-morbid data to use for comparison. Additionally, other studies are limited by an inconsistent and often abbreviated follow-up period and small sample sizes. 
In addition to numerous quantitative studies that exist, there are a handful of qualitative studies based on semi-structured interviews, focus groups, and ethnographic observations that provide insight on the most important consequence of critical illness, which is the impact on the individual and their family unit. Hashim and colleagues performed a systematic review of qualitative studies of critical illness survivors to identify important themes surrounding patient-centered outcomes. They examined 22 articles that reported thematic findings in four major domains, global satisfaction with life, mental health, physical health, and importantly, social health, which is missing from the conventional definition of PICS. Themes in the global satisfaction of life domain spanned a range of markedly positive to very negative emotions as patients assess their lives after profound illness. Positive emotions, exemplified by the first quotation, included finding new sources of motivation and strength, acceptance of the consequences of their illness, gratitude for having survived, and a deeper appreciation for the value of life, themes that are consistent with the concept of post-traumatic growth. A number of ne negative emotions were also prevalent in survivors of critical illness, including boredom, loneliness, isolation, and wishing that they had not survived. Changes in friendships and family relationships were also a recurring theme, with patients noting an inability to enjoy being around people, feeling like a burden, feeling unneeded by their family, and resenting the inability to perform prior activities. Change in work status was often a major issue for patients as they either celebrated their ability to return to work or reconcile their disappointment in being unable to. Furthermore, changing dynamics of relationships can be equally difficult for caregivers to navigate as demonstrated by the second quotation. While knowledge of the sequelae of critical illness is growing, pragmatic recommendations to clinicians caring for critical illness survivors remain scarce. For example, how can we identify those who are at greatest risk for developing PICS? A consensus conference of 31 experts in the assessment of critical illness survivors undertook a comprehensive review of the literature to answer this question. But unfortunately, there is no generally accepted method to predict exactly which patients will develop post-ICU problems. This consensus conference did, however, re-identify some of the key risk factors for the development of disability in individual PICS domains, and these can be categorized into pre-hospitalization factors and acute illness factors. Persons with pre-hospitalization frailty, cognitive impairment, and psychiatric disease, and those whose hospitalizations are complicated by prolonged bed rest, delirium, and psychological distress are at increased role for risk for the development of PICS. I'd like to spend a little bit more time addressing frailty as a risk factor for PICS. Frailty is defined as a multidimensional syndrome of diminished physiologic reserve that reduces one's ability to recover from acute stress. Understanding the impact that it has on post-ICU outcomes could significantly inform shared decision-making while patients are in the ICU or during outpatient advanced care planning sessions. Lauren Ferrante and colleagues utilized the Precipitating Events Project, an ongoing longitudinal study of community-dwelling, initially non-disabled adults aged 70 or older, to prospectively evaluate the relationship between frailty and post-ICU disability, nursing home admission, and death. This cohort of patients is evaluated monthly for disabilities in 13 functional activities and every 18 months for frailty using the FREED Index, which assesses unintentional weight loss, gait speed, physical activity, muscle weakness, and exhaustion. Although the burden of disability worsened considerably for all three groups, she found that frailty status prior to ICU admission was strongly associated with post-ICU disability, nursing home admission, and death through six months of follow-up. In the multivariable analysis, frailty was associated with a 41% greater risk of disability over six months relative to non-frailty, and pre-frailty conferred a 28% greater risk of disability. 
Similarly, the rate of incident nursing home admission increased as frailty status worsened and mortality in the six months following ICU admission was twice as high among participants with frailty as compared with those who were pre-frail or non-frail. The way in which patients recover from PICS is certainly not uniform, and as we shall see, often depends more on their pre-hospitalization trajectory than on the severity of their acute illness. Recovery from critical illness can be likened to three pathways that are more commonly associated with chronic illnesses. Understanding which pathway our patients are on may better inform how to care for them in the outpatient setting. Conceptually, recovery pathways have been loosely classified into three basic trajectories. In the big hit trajectory, patients have an acute loss of function as a consequence of their critical illness, but gradually recover over the course of months to years. The key questions here are, how can we reduce the depth of disability, improve the rapidity of the functional recovery, and minimize the residual deficit? In the slow burn trajectory, patients fail to recover completely and are set off on a new path of persistent, more rapid decline. The key question here is, how can we minimize the rate of decline? In a relapsing recurring trajectory, patients have multiple acute exacerbations, for example, hospital readmissions with varying degrees of partial recovery in between. The key question here is, how can we maximize the interval between acute exacerbations? More formal analyses generally fit into the themes of this conceptual framework with some modest variations. Gandotra and colleagues, for example, studied physical function in 260 patients with acute respiratory failure using the short physical performance battery, or SPPB, at hospital discharge in two, four, and six months thereafter. The SPPB is a composite assessment of balance, gait speed, and lower extremity strength, and it's highly predictive of disability, hospitalization, institutionalization, and mortality in older adults. Four distinct recovery trajectories emerged, distinguished by both the degree and rate of physical function recovery. Group one consisted of patients who were discharged with physical function disability and showed no improvement over six months while group two showed minimal improvement and remained functionally disabled at six months. Group three had low physical function at discharge and improved to intermediate physical function, while group four had intermediate physical function at discharge with rapid improvement to normal function at two months. The greatest change in physical function appears to occur in the first two months after discharge, highlighting the importance of instituting therapy as quickly as possible. Group four consisted primarily of younger patients with shorter ICU lengths of stay, while group one consisted primarily of older patients with longer ICU lengths of stay. These results are concordant with those of the RECOVER study led by Margaret Herridge, who was able to divide a cohort of 391 patients requiring seven or more days of mechanical ventilation into four distinct recovery groups based on their age and ICU lengths of stay. Patients younger than 42 with ICU lengths of stay less than two weeks had the best physical function at one year as measured by the FEM or functional independence measure, while those older than 66 with ICU lengths of stay greater than two weeks sustained the worst disability and mortality at one year. Lastly, we know from work by Lauren Ferrante and colleagues that a person's pre-ICU functional trajectory has a significant impact on their post-ICU functional trajectory and mortality. In a prospective cohort of 754 community-dwelling persons older than 70, one quarter of patients with minimal pre-ICU disability became severely disabled or died within 30 days after critical illness. Of those with mild to moderate pre-ICU disability, 40% transitioned to severe disability, while more than a quarter experienced early death. Of those with severe pre-ICU disability, over one-third experienced early death, and the rest remained severely disabled. Overall, 53% of the sample experienced functional decline or early death after critical illness. Again, pre-ICU trajectories of mild to moderate or severe disability 
were associated with more than double and triple the risk of death within one year of ICU admission, respectively. Development, implementation, and evaluation of effective interventions to prevent or minimize adverse long-term outcomes are clearly important. Many interventions have been studied in the ICU, on the wards, and in the outpatient setting, and disappointingly, as with many studies in critical care in general, very few of them have had encouraging results. At this time, there's a lack of compelling data that physical rehabilitation programs throughout the continuum of care, educational programs, or psychosocial programs are consistently effective in preventing or minimizing the development of PICS. Ginza and colleagues performed a systematic review and meta-analysis of 36 interventions to prevent or minimize PICS, and although in many studies outcomes favored the intervention group, the results were not statistically significant. The best strategy seems to involve the routine incorporation of evidence-based care bundles into the daily delivery of critical care, particularly the ABCDEF bundle endorsed by the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Limiting sedation to maintain a comfortable cooperative patient and daily spontaneous awakening trials can help keep patients cognitively stimulated and engaged in their care. Daily spontaneous breathing trials can exercise respiratory muscles and reduce time spent requiring mechanical ventilation thereby limiting the need for sedative medications and increasing the chance of effective patient mobilization. Screening for delirium, attempting to prevent it, and responding to it with largely non-pharmacological measures could potentially reduce the risk of long-term cognitive impairment. Early mobilization theoretically decreases the risk of disuse atrophy and loss of muscle strength. Early and frequent engagement with the family can help minimize delirium and potentially reduce development of PICS-F. By allowing the development of social relationships that have a reciprocal influence on health and well-being, peer support programs exist for and have been studied in a number of chronic diseases, including cancer, diabetes, and stroke. Given that PICS has many features of a chronic disease and can impact community reintegration and participation in previous social and professional roles, peer support groups have been developed for critical illness survivors and their loved ones. These efforts were consolidated by the introduction of the Society for Critical Care Medicine's Thrive Peer Support Collaborative in 2015. To determine the efficacy of peer support as an intervention to improve recovery in critical illness survivors and their families, Kimberly Haynes and colleagues performed a systematic review of eight studies comprising 92 patients and 192 family members. The most common peer support model among the eight studies was an in-person facilitated group for families that occurred during the patient's ICU admission. In totality, the evidence for benefit of peer support in this patient population is mixed. Two studies showed that peer support reduced anxiety and depression and improved social support and self-efficacy when using a buddy peer-to-peer -peer model that started in the hospital and extended beyond discharge. Similar findings were not found with facilitated group-based models. But only two of the eight studies in the review describe peer support for patients rather than family members, and nearly all of the peer support interventions occurred while patients were in the hospital, rather than in the months to years following critical illness during the so-called adjustment and adaptation phases when the reality of dealing with the new normal truly sets in. Of the 17 support group sites participating in SCCM's peer support collaborative, six general models of peer support are utilized, and there's insufficient literature to determine which of these is most efficacious. Despite the lack of current evidence, there's little reason to suspect that peer support would be ineffective with critical illness survivors, given its demonstrated effectiveness with other populations. What we know from our collective experience and what limits literature in this arena is that support groups are hard to develop and mature, with the most common barriers to implementation being recruitment of participants, training of leaders, sustainability, risk management, and meaningfully measuring the success of the group. Recruitment of patients is perhaps the greatest challenge. 
Although there are large numbers of ISU survivors experiencing PICS, many of them do not necessarily appreciate that these issues are directly related to their ICU stay. This fundamental lack of awareness of PICS among providers who are not intensivists and more broadly among the lay public can prevent survivors from attending services that might benefit them. Moving forward, energy must be placed on raising the profile of PICS and survivorship from critical care to ensure that patients in the wider public have an understanding of the difficulties faced by this group. ICU diaries are another intervention that may help ICU survivors and their loved ones in their recovery. Diaries are typically kept at the bedside and aim to provide a clear narrative and everyday language of the sequence of events throughout the admission. They're usually written by hospital staff, but may also include patient and family input and sometimes include photos. It's been theorized that these diaries may help ICU survivors fill gaps in their memories, come to terms with their illness, and diminish the impact of imagined occurrences or hallucinations, thereby decreasing the psychological impacts of PICS. In a systematic review and meta-analysis of eight studies, McElroy and colleagues found that ICU diaries were associated with less depression and anxiety in patients and with less PTSD in family members. Two of the three studies showed less PTSD in patients, but the pool results did not reach statistical significance. There is concern, however, that the third study was limited by methodological flaws that impacted the pooled results. Although limited by a lack of studies in general and little homogeneity among them, this review nevertheless raises intriguing questions about the beneficial role of a simple, inexpensive intervention that could potentially prevent the psychological sequelae of PICS in both patients and their family members. ICU follow-up clinics are the most comprehensive proposed method for improving long-term wellness in critical illness survivors. Such outpatient clinic-based resources have existed in Europe for more than 20 years, but they're just developing in the United States. Thus far, four randomized studies have evaluated outpatient interventions aimed at improving ICU recovery, and only one showed a meaningful impact, which was a decrease in the composite outcome of death or readmission within 30 days of hospital discharge. While important, the study failed to address long-term outcomes in a meaningful way. And as you can see in the figure, only eight patients in the study's intervention group actually attended an ICU recovery appointment. The three earlier randomized studies were also limited in meaningful ways, and it would be inaccurate to call them studies of a post-ICU clinic. The interventions actually tested in these trials included information pamphlets and facilitated discussions with trained nurses, primarily via telephone, a self-directed home physical rehabilitation program complemented by two nurse visits for psychiatric assessment, and intensive case management and decision support for primary care physicians. Despite the lack of data supporting ICU follow-up clinics, the UK National Institute for Health and Care Excellence Guidelines recommends that adults who require critical care for more than four days have a review two to three months following discharge from critical care. At least 48 UK hospitals have an ICU follow-up program for this purpose. Unfortunately, given the heterogeneity among current ICU follow-up clinics with respect to the patient population, timing and duration of follow-up, screening tests performed, and interventions administered, collating data from current clinics has its challenges, but these are being actively addressed. Despite the paucity of data regarding their efficacy, there are many reasons why ICU follow-up clinics make sense. First, ICU follow-up clinics provide continuity of care, particularly when staffed by intensivists who cared for the patient, who are at least familiar with the diagnoses and interventions common in the ICU. These clinics can comprehensively evaluate patients and their families for PICS and can then construct a goal-directed rehabilitation plan. Clinicians familiar with PICS can spend more time therapeutically listening to patients and their families, helping them reconstruct their ICU memories, normalize their experience, and set realistic expectations for recovery. 
These appointments generally last two to three hours and can therefore accomplish significantly more than a 30-minute follow-up appointment with the primary care physician. PICS is not a static set of problems, but rather a chronic illness that changes over time. Serial assessments and flexible interventions are required to meet the demands of patients recovering from critical illness, and this is best achieved by a post-ICU clinic. Lastly, these clinics can be beneficial to intensivists. In a field fraught with death and burnout, seeing patients thrive following their illness can be therapeutic to a clinician's soul. Given that care coordination for critical illness survivors is inadequate, the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Thrive Initiative implemented two international learning collaboratives to facilitate rapid identification of strategies to improve outcomes for ICU survivors and their families. The peer support collaborative was launched in 2015 and the post-ICU clinic collaborative in 2017. So enablers include motivated clinician champions to lead an interprofessional team forward using creative problem solving and supportive administrators to help overcome bureaucratic red tape with defined operational processes. Particularly common barriers included access to and sustainability of funding and space, skilled clinicians to staff these programs, identifying those survivors who might benefit and mechanisms to support their attendance. While there's currently little quantitative data that supports ICU follow-up clinics and peer support groups, there are some benefits to these programs that may not be neatly applied to a quantitative model. Working with the hypothesis that care provided in the ICU might change if clinicians knew more about outcomes following ICU discharge, the Thrive Collaboratives use qualitative interviews to probe for such feedback mechanisms among post-ICU programs. After analyzing interviews of participants from 13 peer support sites and 15 post-ICU clinic sites, five mechanisms by which post-ICU activities can result in improvements in ICU care were identified. Three of these were identified at an organizational level and included identifying otherwise unseen targets for ICU quality improvement or education programs, creating a new role for survivors in the ICU, harnessing their altruism and the wish to give something back to the healthcare system that saved them, and educating colleagues by having them visit the post-ICU program to provide insights about patient trajectories following the ICU, which can often inform goals of care discussions for patients in the ICU. Two additional mechanisms were identified at an intra-clinician level and included changing a clinician's own understanding of the patient experience. In other words, we become better clinicians by gaining greater insights into the patient's experience and by recognizing, anticipating, and preempting patient and family needs following ICU discharge and improving morale. Examples of this include offering the opportunity to close the feedback loop to ICU staff about positive outcomes in challenging cases, decreasing the risk of burnout for some clinicians, and addressing compassion fatigue, both directly by staffing the clinic and indirectly by providing feedback to others. So with that in mind, we began screening patients for our critical illness recovery center at UPMC Mercy in May of 2018, and the first patients were seen in June of 2018. The inclusion criteria include an ICU length of stay of four or more days, along with a diagnosis that increases the risk for developing PICs, including respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation, severe sepsis, or delirium. The major exclusion criteria are a life expectancy less than six months or limited rehabilitation potential, such as patients who are dependent for care prior to their hospitalization. We try to see patients within two to four weeks of their discharge from inpatient care, and then based on their needs at three months, six months, occasionally nine months, 12 months, and occasionally thereafter. The clinic is a full day on Thursday with groups of patients scheduled at either 9 a.m. or 1 p.m., which allows providers to rotate through the rooms, minimizing downtime and patient waiting. Initial visits to the clinic average two and a half to three hours, 
and follow-up visits last approximately one and a half to two hours. Despite a slower start, the clinic is now consistently seeing 20 to 30 patients per month, thanks to a form of mild harassment via telephone, strongly encouraging the patients to keep their appointments and troubleshooting any obstacles that the patient offers as a barrier to coming. We celebrated our two-year anniversary yesterday, actually, and over the first two years, we've seen a total of 220 novel patients over a total of 401 visits. We pride ourselves on being a truly multidisciplinary clinic. At every appointment, patients will be seen by an intensivist, a fellow in critical care medicine, or a nurse practitioner with expertise in palliative care, a pharmacist, a respiratory therapist, an occupational therapist, a speech language pathologist, a physical therapist, a dietitian, and a case manager or social worker if needed. Patients now also have the opportunity to be seen by a licensed clinical social worker with an expertise in mental health to provide counseling for patients screening positive for depression, anxiety, or a post-traumatic stress disorder. These visits take a long time because of the comprehensive evaluation that we perform with the patient and their loved one, as you can see in this slide. In the interest of time, I won't go through this evaluation with you, but I'm happy to provide more information in the question period if you have some. Not surprisingly, this patient population has considerable rehabilitation needs. The vast majority of patients seen in the clinic receive a prescription for physical therapy, and smaller but still substantial numbers of patients receive prescriptions for occupational or cognitive therapy, and commonly patients are given prescriptions for all three. We also refer to pulmonologists for patients with chronic lung disease, to pulmonary rehabilitation, cardiac rehabilitation, ENT for voice issues following intubation, to chronic pain specialists, mental health professionals, and we arrange primary care physicians for those who do not have one. In addition to providing prescriptions to rehabilitation specialists and referrals to other medical subspecialists, we offer other services, including medication education and reconciliation, immunization administration, providing pill boxes, smoking cessation counseling and resources, inhaler education, providing spacers for inhalers, referring to low-cost nutritional supplement programs, arranging durable medical equipment and community transportation services, providing short-term psychotherapy with a licensed clinical social worker, and inviting patients and their loved ones to our support group. We pride ourselves on spending considerable time with the patient and their loved ones discussing their goals, values, and future healthcare preferences so that the care they are provided is consistent with the care that they want. We're able to obtain a code status and surrogate decision maker for nearly every patient, and we often give out advanced directive information for them to fill out and share with their primary care physician and with us at a future appointment. Preliminary data from our clinic suggests that the goals of care discussions are particularly meaningful in both determining the patient's wishes regarding future care and serving as a mechanism to prevent future unwanted healthcare resource utilization we found that 31.6% of patients reported that previously requested or utilized aggressive treatments were no longer consistent with their current healthcare values and preferences. Of these, 70% wanted only a time-limited trial of critical care, 23.3% did not want to be intubated again, and 6.7% did not want to return to the ICU at all. Clinics like ours have a lot of intangible benefits that cannot be measured in the number of PT prescriptions provided, unnecessary medications discontinued, or even readmissions prevented. These include educating patients and their families about PICS, thoroughly discussing the depth and the breadth of the patient's disabilities and the impact that they're having on their lives, managing expectations about the pace and the breadth of recovery, normalizing the recovery process, helping them to understand that they're healing at an appropriate pace and that they're not alone, 
counseling regarding the potential for caregiver burden and goal setting with a rehabilitation plan centered on these goals. All in all, this provides a holistic approach to the patient as an individual with a body, a mind, and a soul, and not simply a disability or an organ dysfunction. We call ourselves the Critical Illness Recovery Center because we are more than an ICU follow-up clinic. In January of 2019, we added a monthly support group for survivors of critical illness and their loved ones. In January of 2020, we began an ICU journal program to lessen the psychiatric burden of PICs and patients and their loved ones. In response to COVID-19 in March, we expanded our support group to a weekly virtual meeting using Microsoft Teams available to anyone seen in any UPMC facility rather than just our home institution. In April, we began an inpatient PICS consult service to start education and perform a preclinic needs assessment prior to hospital discharge. And soon we will introduce a weekly support group for family members of patients currently in the ICU to help normalize feelings and experiences and promote the development of coping skills needed to face the consequences of their loved one's critical illness and recovery. Many consider survivorship to be the defining challenge of critical care in the 21st century. We know that survivors of critical illness face profound existential uncertainties and oftentimes an alienated relationship with their own bodies. They experience a complex post-discharge care and their loved ones must shoulder the substantial burden of becoming a home care provider and coordinator of future care. The critical care community must recognize these challenges and address them by institutionally supporting survivorship as a goal of both clinical care and research. If we make survivorship a priority, then we can improve the lives of survivors. Although in medicine, the benefit of doubt is rarely given to unproven treatments, despite the lack of current evidence, critical care professionals should continue initiating and testing structured interventions to ensure the best possible outcomes of our ICU patients. Because in this case, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Thank you so much for your time and attention, and I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. Thank you so much, Brad. That was awesome. Thanks. Um, I, I will start off with a question, if that's okay. And it's sort of a comment um, with a question as well. But I think that for me, at least, as a critical care provider on the inpatient side, it's very intuitive to think about a patient coming in with DKA or acute MI, and then as they get discharged from the hospital to making sure they have um, follow-up set up with the cardiologist or the endocrinologist. But it seems less intuitive, I think, even as someone who does post-ICU work, to think about setting up our patients with an intensivist or even a pulmonologist. Um, and I find that lots of our patients who are leaving the hospital with diagnoses of sepsis or ARDS are getting transferred to the medicine wards. And the expectation is that they're being uh, followed by their primary care provider. And they probably just don't have a good enough understanding of the issues generated in the ICU. Are you finding that aside from your team um, going through the, the Mercy inpatients and, and selecting patients who are eligible for your clinic, are you getting referrals? Are people thinking about you guys when they're doing discharge planning? How is that, how is that working? That's a good question. I mean, primarily at this point, we're the ones who are identifying the patients that would be eligible for the clinic um, and ensuring that they have a follow-up appointment with us prior to leaving the hospital. We haven't really had any referral from physicians in the community who have had a patient in the past require ICU care and are having a lot of trouble. We would love to build better relationships with primary care physicians in the community. 
but that's becoming increasingly challenging to do as our hospital moves more from a community type of hospital to a more purely academic setting where patients are being cared for almost exclusively by hospitalists rather than primary care physicians. Um, so setting up that pipeline and ensuring that things are sort of naturally built into the electronic medical um, system that you have in order to ensure that patients get follow-up appointments made and they're easily identified and followed is really a key component of setting up a post-ICU clinic. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that an intensivist specifically is the person who runs the post-ICU clinic. Many people would argue that an intensivist should be that person, but there is a lack of supply of intensivists. And it's sometimes hard to find intensivists who want to take care of patients in the ICU and also see patients in clinic. Many of us chose intensive care because we didn't want a clinic experience and we enjoyed the intensity and the pace and the relationships developed in the hospital. So you could take a very engaged hospitalist or a very engaged primary care physician or an advanced practice provider who's at least familiar with the diagnoses and the procedures and the treatments provided in the intensive care unit. And that person could clearly help develop a clinic of their own. It doesn't have to be an intensivist, but intensivists are naturally suited, um, in my opinion, to at least start these clinics. I think, I think that's a good point. And I, I'm just gonna um, sort of piggyback off that and, and just make an offer to the fellows who are listening to this. Actually, a couple of things Brad said are true. Lots of us go into critical care because we wanna see patients on the inpatient side, but it does often result in burnout and we only see the sickest of the sick and patients not getting better. Um, I invite any of you guys to come see these post-ICU patients in my clinic with me. You can talk to Sophie Corzon, who was in clinic with me this week. I think it's um, really refreshing and kind of uh, invigorating to see some of these patients walk into your clinic when you saw them on death's doorstep. Um, so you have a couple of questions in the chat box and they're coming from fellows. So Katie Chin says, Dr. Butcher, how do you think we can better involve families and support persons in our care of COVID? in our care of COVID-19 patients during this pandemic with many restrictions on gathering and visitations? Yeah, so that's a really excellent question and I'm not sure I have the perfect answer to that, but we did see a patient in our clinic yesterday who was a COVID-19 survivor and suffered really significant delirium. Um, and the, he was haunted by the delusion that his wife had died from COVID and that none of his providers would tell him that that was the case when in fact that wasn't true. And it wasn't until someone gave him an iPad and he was able to FaceTime with his wife and see that she was alive that he finally could feel at peace. So given the really strict visitation restrictions that we have at this point in time, I think technology has to be utilized in order to try to mimic the in-person relationship as best as possible. Um, and that's really the best answer that I have to address that question at this point in time. We certainly try to have um, family members and loved ones come to the clinic appointment with the survivors of COVID-19 so we can at least debrief about their experience and what it was like for them to be trapped at home and only communicating with the nurse via telephone and not being able to see them. Because remember, family members are at risk for PICS as well. And we would expect to see that perhaps the incidence of anxiety and PTSD uh, might increase in both patients, but as well as family members of survivors of COVID-19, given that they weren't able to be at their bedside holding their hand um, during their most vulnerable moments. Yeah, I expect to see that as well in my clinic. So, all right, so you have Lindsay Ritter and Matt Jaffa, maybe they're together. They're both fellows here as well. They're saying, hi, Dr. Butcher. Thank hi. you so much for the talk. 
Um, how did you build buy-in from hospital system to develop such a, a robust multidisciplinary clinic? Well, so that could take 30 minutes to answer that question, but I will try to answer it by saying, it took me about two years of effort to lay the foundation for this clinic before the first patient was seen. I was inspired by a talk that was given at SCCM uh, five or six years ago at this point, and then came back to my institution and wondered why we didn't have something like that to help our patients. And then sort of very on the DL, I would talk to my ICU pharmacist and say, hey, if a clinic existed to take care of patients after the ICU, is that something you'd be willing to participate in? And they'd be like, yeah, that's cool. And then I'd talk to a respiratory therapist friend and say, hey, if this existed, what, what would you think about that? And eventually I got my way up to the directors of pharmacy and respiratory therapy. Um, and I work at a Catholic hospital where charity is part of the mission. And so everybody was very interested in participating. And if you can link it to a personal story, most people either have a personal experience with being in the intensive care unit themselves or have a loved one who has been in the intensive care unit for a prolonged period of time. And they know that that person was fundamentally different when they left the hospital than they were before they went in. And if you can help them recall a memory that they have of that, then they'll almost automatically say, God, I wish something like this existed for my loved one when they were in the ICU. And that's really helpful to get buy-in. Um, financially, um, I was able to win a grant for $25,000 that our hospital offered for novel um, clinical programs. And that was able to buy all the equipment that was necessary for carrying out the clinic, like the spirometer and you know the food for the swallowing evaluation and the hand grip strength dynamometer and things like that. Um, and now the hospital after two years is finally built into or bought into the concept a little bit such that they are funding the salary for our licensed clinical social worker who has been a godsend and for the APP in the clinic to see patients both in the inpatient setting before they come to the clinic and then in the clinic as well. Uh, Dr. Kierbach, who's still on, is saying, excellent talk. Do you collaborate with palliative medicine for goals of care? and symptom management. She's actually the head of our palliative care here at Maryland. Well, we have a very unique situation um, in that the, the APP that works with me in the clinic was a critical care nurse at the bedside for many years, then uh, became a nurse practitioner and worked in the palliative care program. So it was her idea to have a really robust palliative care component to our evaluation, and she's actually getting her PhD in nursing, hopefully defending her dissertation this December based on the palliative care component um, in our clinic. So in addition to doing goals of care discussions and filling out advanced directives and pulse, we do do um, a symptom analysis as well based on the PEACE tool with which you're probably familiar. And so we address symptom management during the clinic as well. So we don't have a formal relationship with the palliative care program at our hospital, but we have an informal relationship in that one of the palliative care providers from that team is now um, fully wrapped into our post-ICU service. All right, you have a shout out here from Amber Landsman who says, hi, B. <laughs> That's my sister-in-law, thank you. Okay. <laughs> She's led some of our support group sessions. She's a wellness coach and um, a couple of weeks ago gave a session on breathing techniques, which was very well received, so. Does anyone else have anything for Dr. Butcher? I, I will take the time to ask one more question while people are maybe thinking. I was really struck by the data you showed at the beginning of the talk about 
the discrepancies between the providers predicted kind of survival and um, morbidity and the, um, I don't think it was the patient, I think it was their surrogate right. caretaker, yeah, um, and, and how discordant those numbers were. And I wonder if the answer is just that, are we just so bad at prognosticating? Are we not honest with our patients up front? You know, do we need to do a better job of working with palliative care right from the beginning to make sure expectations are are better outlined and and I feel like as a critical care provider one of the things I think we're really bad at is is accurately prognosticating you know so I think we're able to kind of paint a grim picture like you said it was often a grimmer picture than was the reality but how do we get those numbers closer together where the patient's expectations and the provider's expectations are more accurate to what the reality is going to be. So that's a really excellent question. I'm glad you brought it up. So I think it's threefold. A, we are bad at prognosticating. B, we're bad at communicating with families. And C, regardless of the message that families get, they are inherently going to be more optimistic than we are just because of the nature of the relationship to the patient. I think, um, you know, I think it's very interesting as intensivists, we're thrust into this role where we have to make prognostications that are really meaningful and impactful, yet there's no literature generally that we base that on. It's just kind of based on a hunch of people that you've seen. Like when in your fellowship did you get trained for a month on how to prognosticate you know, someone's survival or not even their survival, but how much disability they're gonna have when they leave the hospital or how many times they might be readmitted or how much uh, caregiving they'll be needed by their partner or by their child. Like you don't get any education in that. It's just something that you sort of craft over the course of your clinical career. And seeing patients in, in a clinic like ours really does make you a better ICU doctor because I can have a much more informed goals of care discussion now than I could have had eight years ago when I began my career at UPMC because I've actually seen the outcomes of critical illness. And I've had enough patients similar to the ones that I'm now having a family meeting with where I can say, realistically, this is what you can expect. But even after having done this for a couple of years and having seen like over 200 patients in clinic, there's still plenty of people who I was certain were going to die in the hospital and I'm dumbfounded when they walk into the clinic. And there are certain people who I was sure would do just fine and ended up not surviving. So, despite how good a clinician you are, you, there's always uh, room for improvement. And I think prognostication is the, the biggest area where we can improve. All right, last chance for anyone else. Any questions, feel free to be brave and unmute yourself. I think that was a great talk, Brad. I think it was a great way actually to end our critical care curriculum for the year because there is something after uh, the ICU care we provide. There's a lot, I think, after that. And we don't get to see a whole lot of that. We don't know what these patients look like after they leave the ICU. We don't get to see the full recovery stories or know what kind of suffering these patients have long-term. So I think understanding what comes next is really important. And just for the last time, I'll encourage any of you guys who want to to reach out to me. I'm happy to bring you into the clinic. Um, I'm still learning a lot from Brad and trying to make the clinic as multidisciplinary as I can. Um, and I know lots of you on the call have been interested in collaborating and that is exactly what I want and need. I think that's what these patients need. So this is a wonderful talk. I'm so glad you could join us. I'm sorry that you were not here in person, but um, I'm, I'm glad you could join us in this virtual format.
for those of you who do have questions and are too shy to talk or haven't thought of it now, feel free to send me a tweet or an email afterwards and I'll be happy to respond to you. But thank you so much for, for participating and um, engaging with me for the past hour. I hope you enjoyed it and uh, wish you all the best. All right, Brad, stay safe. Thanks, you guys too.